Welcome to this week's edition of Flashback Friday, your opportunity to get some good review by listening to episodes from the past that Jason has handpicked to help you today in the present and propel you into the future. Enjoy. Welcome to Creating Wealth with Jason Hartman. During this program, Jason is going to tell you some really exciting things that you probably haven't thought of before and a new slant on investing. Fresh new approaches to America's best investment that will enable you to create more wealth and happiness than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made, multi-millionaire who not only talks the talk, but walks the walk. He's been a successful investor for 20 years and currently owns properties in 11 states and 17 cities. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to financial freedom. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show. This is your host, Jason Hartman, and this is episode number 243. Thanks for joining me today as we talk about the House of Cards. Our guest today will be talking about some very interesting stuff when it comes to our financial system. And, you know, we kind of go back and forth on the Creating Wealth Show where sometimes we talk about really practical things that are very much relevant to what you specifically as an investor want to do. For example, I think it'll be our next episode, number 244, where we're going to have a case study from one of our clients and hear firsthand what our clients are doing. And and we've got a few of those interviews recorded. So thank you so much, those of you listeners out here who, who stepped forward when I asked if you would be interested in being on the show. And we appreciate you. And we appreciate your willingness to give and to share your advice and your experiences with other investors so they can hear it really from the person who's out there actually doing it, not from a person who's recommending it like myself or a person who's has anything at stake. You're just a totally neutral person who just wants to share their experience. And that's just really great that you're doing that. So we have we have some of those shows coming up, but we also have some more educational shows like today's show where we'll talk about with a guest expert and author on the house of cards that is our modern financial system. So we'll get into that here in just a moment. But few things before that, some interesting news, articles, quotes, things I've received in my email box that I thought I would share with you and so forth. First of all, a couple quotes, a couple good quotes. You know, I love quotes. Do you like quotes? I think the reason quotes are so great is that they sum up in such a a short sentence or two. They embody a lot of philosophy in them. So two quotes that I just want to share with you today. One is this one, and it goes, Success means having the courage, the determination, and the will to become the person you believe you were meant to be. George Sheehan. Now, that one's great, and I got another one that's just from memory here that I've lived by for many, many years, and I remember it came out of Robert Allen's old, old Creating Wealth book where he had 52 quotes in the back, one week for every, or one quote for every week of the year, and it goes something like this just from memory here. Successful people make decisions quickly as soon as all the facts are available and change them very slowly, if ever. Unsuccessful people, on the other hand, make decisions quickly and change them often. And isn't that the truth, though? You know people out there in your life who are constantly flitting from one deal to another. They're doing this, they're doing that, flavor of the month. 
And that just doesn't build a lot of credibility among one's sphere of influence. Same is true in our own lives and with ourselves. We need to have the determination to make a decision. As soon as we see an opportunity, we evaluate it, we gather the facts, and then we actually execute on it and we do something about it. Because success in life is not really ever, so far as I know, except for a few lottery winners and things like that. But usually, actually, if you read those studies about lottery winners, they usually end up broke just a couple of years later, even if they win a zillion dollars. So you never seem to hear any of those lottery winners parlaying their winnings into big fortunes and becoming the next Donald Trump or Sam Zell, or Sam Zell's a big real estate investor, or the next Bill Gates or anything like that, and turning them into something big. You know, they usually just blow their money. So life doesn't come in those sudden breaks. It comes in the daily effort of doing things well and making good, prudent decisions every single day we go along and sticking with those decisions and following them and seeing them through. You know, one of the best things my mother ever said to me when I was growing up, and I I used to hate it when she said this to me as a kid, it used to really annoy me. But she always said, Jason, finish the job finish the job because you know how kids are kids will start something and you know they just they'll follow through for about five ten minutes and then they get bored if you have children or if you ever were a kid yourself which of course everybody was you know you might remember maybe the example of getting a pet or getting a pet for your kids and the common pet thing goes something like this and you know i don't have kids but i i know how it works as far as this goes the kid says oh you know Please get me a dog. Get me a dog. I want a dog, right? I'll take care of the dog. I promise. I'll do everything. I'll walk the dog. I'll feed the dog. I'll I'll give the dog baths and everything, right? And that happens for about two weeks. And then suddenly the parents are ending up taking care of the dog, right? Typical thing. Finish the job, okay? So that's a great quote about what it really takes to be successful. It's the simple daily progression toward a worthy goal. And showing up every day and just doing the thing. Earl Nightingale, I I love Earl Nightingale, such a classic. He passed away back in 1989, but he he was really one of my big mentors in life. Dennis Whaley, Earl Nightingale, Jim Rohn, Zig Ziglar, all of those sort of old motivational speakers that were really famous in their day, but have since they're not as well known nowadays. And what I love about those speakers is that they were about philosophy embodying a set of ideas. Whereas nowadays, most of the stuff you hear out there in the marketplace, it's very specific and technical. And on show number 150, when I interviewed, you know, one of my big mentors, Dennis Waitley, on episode number 150 of this show, The Creating Wealth Show, go back and listen to that if you wish. I said that to him, you know, most of the education out there nowadays is very specific and technical in nature rather than philosophical. And I believe you need a balance of the two. But regardless of it, if you get all of the technical knowledge, if you don't have the philosophy, which is the foundation, the belief system, which is the foundation or the context in which the content of that philosophy, of that the technical knowledge would be the content, 
the philosophy or the belief system would be the context. You put all the greatest content in the world into something, and if the context is not supportive of the content, the content will not flourish or it will just completely die. So that's what's so important about philosophy. And Earl Nightingale, if you don't know who he is, go look him up. Nightingale Conan has a great website. You can buy all his old audio recordings. I mean, he's before my time, okay? But I just think he was awesome. And and Jim Rohn and Dennis Whateley, Zig Ziglar too. So just a thought there, a random thought there, that quote we'd start out with. So technically speaking, on more of the technical side here today, interest rates. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. I recorded an interview with Dan Ammerman. We're going to have him back on the show here soon. I recorded that this morning and we were talking about how valuable the mortgage asset is. It's just, just incredibly valuable. And you look at this Associated Press article out. It says, mortgage buyer Freddie Mac said Thursday that the rate on the 30-year home loan was unchanged at 3.87%. That's the lowest level since long-term mortgages began back in the 1950s. I mean, folks, if you don't stock up on long-term fixed-rate investment-grade debt right now, you are missing the boat. So make sure you do that. Another article that was interesting, and this one, gosh, what what dsnews.com. I don't know where I even got this. I think it was one of the newsletters I clicked on. Anyway, this article is kind of interesting. It says, housing. now, what's interesting about this before I go into this article is that since we know income property is a multidimensional asset class, we can play this either way. It does not matter to us as prudent income property investors, because when we do it right, we're going to benefit regardless of how this plays out. Now, this article is kind of optimistic, and optimistic or pessimistic, either way, whether it gets easier to buy a property or harder to buy a property, we'll make money because we know how to do it, okay? We know how to adapt to the market and play the game regardless of the cards we're dealt. Voltaire, another great quote, something like this, the English essayist couple centuries ago, Voltaire said, one cannot choose the cards they're dealt, but must choose how to play the cards in order to win the game. And that's exactly what we do. I have something that I talk about in the Creating Wealth seminar in the Creating Wealth Home Study course called the Three Dimensions of Real Estate. And just showing how it's a multi-dimensional asset class. And there are really more than three dimensions, but Heck, three-dimensional, that sounds pretty good. It's sort of catchy. And as a multi-dimensional asset class, we know how to play it either way. So what's interesting about this article is that it's pretty optimistic, right? It says, housing crisis to end in 2012 as banks loosen credit standards. Capital Economics expects the housing crisis to end this year, according to a report released Thursday. One of the reasons? Loosening credit. The analytics firm's notes that the average credit score required to attain a mortgage is 700. So that's a 700 FICO score, right? While this is higher than scores required prior to the financial crisis, it is constant 
actually I think they meant to say consistent, with requirements one year ago. Additionally, a Fed senior loan officer survey found credit requirements in the fourth quarter were consistent with the past three quarters. However, the mortgage market indicators point not to just a stabilization of mortgage lending standards, but also a loosening of credit availability. Isn't this what we've all been waiting for? Supposedly, Ben Bernanke and TurboTax Timmy Geithner get up there and they keep saying, the banks have got a loan. But of course, they give them a bunch, this is my commentary, obviously, they give them a bunch of bailout money, a bunch of taxpayer money printed, created out of thin air that the government doesn't even have into the trillions. And they have no actual technical legal requirement for them to loan money. They just give it to them trillions of dollars and hope that they will do the right thing and lend. It's unbelievably ridiculous. I mean, who in their right mind would do a business deal that way, where there's no requirement on the other party, right? Okay, enough of my rant and my frustration. Back to the article. Banks are now lending amounts up to 3.5 times borrower earnings. This is up from a low during the the financial crisis of 3.2 times borrower earnings. Banks are also loosening loan-to-value ratios, otherwise known as LTV, loan-to-value ratio, which Capital Economics denotes as, quote, the clearest sign yet of an improvement in mortgage credit conditions, unquote. In contrast to a low of 74% reached in the mid-2010, banks are now lending at an 82% LTV, or loan-to-value ratio. While credit conditions may have loosened slightly, potential home buyers are still struggling with credit requirements. My comment here. Folks, tens of millions of people have seen their own credit scores either unintentionally or completely on purpose through strategic defaults, they have seen them decline. And this, I say, benefits us as investors big time. Because while lots of people used to have credit scores above that 700 FICO score mark or 720 mark, nowadays, uh, not so many. And a lot of it was purely by choice through strategic defaults, okay? So this benefits us. Why? Because it it forces more people into the renter pool. Remember, the great thing about our asset class that we love so much, income property, especially when it comes to housing-related income property, single-family homes, apartment complexes, the reason it's so great is because people have so few choices. You can either buy, you can rent, you can be homeless, and jokingly, you can live with your parents, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and so that obviously is good for us, right? When it's harder to buy, rents increase. Dan Ammerman and I talked about that this morning. By the way, I recorded another show today you're going to find very interesting when we publish it, which is about the solo 401k and breaking out of 401k jail. I know a lot of you listening are in 401k jail with your company and your retirement plan, and we have a show coming up on that very subject, and we're also going to talk about it at Meet the Masters in March. But anyway, just to finish this article off, it's almost done. While credit conditions may have loosened slightly, some potential homebuyers are still struggling with credit requirements. In fact, Capital Economics points out that in November, 8% of contract cancellations, okay, in other words, where the property went under contract, went into escrow, when it was sold, were canceled 
were, were a result of the potential buyer not qualifying for a loan. Additionally, Capital Economics says, quote, any improvement in credit conditions won't be significant enough to generate actual house price gains. Well, hey, fine with us as investors. If nobody's motivated to buy because they don't think the prices are going up, they can rent from us. Either way, we understand it's a multidimensional asset class. We know how to play the game. So anyway, that's enough on that article. Another thing I got interesting, and this is actually a friend's company, a friend of mine that I've known for many years back in Orange County. I will not say the name of his company because I don't think his deal is very good. <laughs> you know, he, he's been pitching me for a while to recommend his hard money loans or his private lending deals. And listen to this deal, okay? This this compared to the private lending or hard money that I can introduce you to, I think is a terrible deal compared to our deals, okay? So I'll just tell you about this. This is a new second trustee, meaning you're in second position as the lender. And you know what? When it comes to being a lien holder, a mortgage holder, I do not like being in second position. I've done it many times. I lost money one time on it as a lender. That's why I'm not nuts about being a lender. But, you know, I didn't really understand it as well then as I do now. And I think my lending now, I really like the lending that I'm doing. And, you know, a lot of you clients, I know a lot of you listening are, are doing lending through the introductions that I've made for you. And many, many of you have expressed interest in it. And by the way, in a moment, I'm going to talk about some due diligence and some requirements I want you to put on your private lending just to reduce your risk. But let me tell you about this deal first and why I think it's a lame deal. So this is a second trustee. Don't like being in second position. It only pays 10.875%, which is not very good, frankly. I mean, of course, that's far better than anything you're probably going to get on Wall Street, far better than the bank, for sure. It's a lot better than the bank by a multitude of, of thousands, but it's still not that good. And here's why. This property is a single family home in Beverly Hills. It's four. $15 million. And they want you to loan a second loan, a second trustee on this property of $980,000. So this is the big leagues, folks. This is big money we're talking about, right? There's a first on the property of $5,345,000, bringing the loan to value ratio to 45 0.18%. Now that's a good LTV. It's very good. But on a property, on a big property like this, a single family home, these are highly risky deals. Okay. Plus you're in second position. So here's what happens when you're in second position. If they default on the first loan, you don't have the right to foreclose. You, to gain that right, to buy that right, and again, I'm not a total expert in this, okay, and I'm not a lawyer, so this can vary from state to state, but just generally speaking, conceptually speaking, you've got to manage the default on the first loan. So you've got to pay the payments on the first loan to keep the first lender from foreclosing first, because if they foreclose first, you could be totally wiped out and get nothing. That's why being in second position can be very, very risky. And in second position for a borrower with, they say, good or fair credit on this 18-month-long loan, you get 10.875%. And folks, 
I think that deal stinks. It's not nearly as good as the 12 and an eighth that you can earn through our group on much smaller loans. So even if an investor came to us and said, hey, I've got a million bucks I'd like to loan, I would rather see them diversify to different providers and different properties and different geographies, which is what we can do for you by referring you to our vendors. And they're much smaller, much more saleable properties than one big property in Beverly Hills. I mean, folks, that deal, it may be fine, but I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. So there you go. Now, a couple things I want you to know about hard money lending, and this will be a short thing here, but if you ever do hard money or private lending, I want to give you a few tips on that as a due diligence checklist and a, and, a, and some requirements you want to make of the borrower. Number one, always use an escrow company or an attorney, depending on the geography. Some places use attorneys. Some places use escrow companies. So use one of those as a neutral third party. Number two, get and evaluate comparable sales info or an actual appraisal so you're comfortable with the loan-to-value ratio or the LTV so that you feel you've got a good margin of safety in there if possible and by the way I want to say this is not necessarily always possible to do this next one but if you can it doesn't hurt to do it and that is get a preliminary title report why is it not always possible because a lot of our vendors are buying these properties at foreclosure auctions and they need to be funded almost instantly so you can't there's not time to get a preliminary title report sometimes but if you can get it get it try to get it all right number four require a closing protection letter or a lender's escrow instruction showing you, the lender, in the first lien position. Again, I don't like being second place in this mortgage lending. I want to be first lien, but you need a closing protection letter, and a lot of people don't know what that is. So just call it a lender's escrow instruction, and that should be signed by the attorney or the escrow officer showing you, the lien holder, in first position. Okay, And require a lender's title policy. So that's a title insurance policy that protects you, the lender, so that you know there are no other liens on the property. And then finally, only wire money to the attorney, the escrow, or the title company who is doing the transaction. Do not wire the money to the borrower directly. Okay, so a couple things there that can protect you and reduce your risk when doing private lending or hard money lending. But folks, the returns are phenomenal. It's simpler than owning the real estate. I do like owning the real estate myself much better. I think income property is much better than being a lender. But for quick, easy, simple, scalable things, if you want to deploy a lot of money and you want to deploy it quickly and you want it to be simple, the lending is great for that, especially the short-term lending. But even if it's longer-term lending, it can still be pretty good. You're going to do a lot better than you're going to do in the bank, for sure. And you'll probably do a lot better than you'll do pretty much anywhere else, except owning the property directly. Okay, a little sign here that the economy may be recovering. I don't know that it really is. I, I don't, it's sort of hard to really even address that issue. And, you know, we sort of do that overall on the show with all the guests I talk to. So I'm not going to delve into that right now. But one sign that that there is money sloshing around out there again, I think, is the fact that you've got all these sort of somewhat hokey deals out there, 
And that's where you hear these companies again. I didn't hear them for years, and now they're all back. They're on the radio selling like ranch land and lakefront property in these obscure areas. And, you know, I've got one here that came in my email box. It's called Tennessee Land and Lakes. And again, you know, I've never seen these properties. I've never checked them out. They may be a great deal. I doubt it, but they're calling this the initial public offering, okay? And they say you can buy lakefront property starting at $99,900. And they say this property sold from 2005 to 2008, upwards of $1 million. Now, here's the scam on that sometimes, okay? It's not this exact property. It's some property somewhere near it might have sold for that. It could have been a different different size of parcel, different location, et cetera, et cetera. So you can buy these dockable lakefront properties starting at 99900 You can buy the private wooded locations starting at 24900 folks. I've looked at some of these properties like this. Groups have asked us to sell them. Again, I'm not referring to this specific property, which may be fine. I really have no idea. This is called like Legacy Shores or something. But I've been out to developments that appear to be like this. And let me tell you something. They buy these lots. They're in the boonies. They buy these lots for nothing. People will go in there and they will buy these lots in mass for $1,000 each and resell them for $25,000. Again, you want to buy rental property. You don't want to buy crap in Belize. I know one of my competitors sells this stuff. In, but look, listen, I went to Belize last year and I looked at these properties. There's no rental market in Belize. If you like this sort of Caribbean kind of lifestyle where it's sunny and you got beaches, I mean, frankly, I think it's a third world country, okay? I, I'm not a fan of places like that, but to each his own. If you want to kick back on the beach and check out a civilization, it might be okay. But there's no rental market for these properties. These are not investments. This lakefront property in Tennessee, show me where the employment is. Show me who my renter is, okay? I want property that rents to people, that produces income. If it does not produce income, it is not an investment. Remember my rule about that. It must produce income or it is only a speculation. Gold, silver, platinum, palladium, raw land, properties in Belize, these properties, Costa Rica, whatever the heck it is, these properties do not produce income. We are not about investing in real estate. We are about investing in income property. Note the distinction in the language. It's called income property because it produces income. It's not speculative. You buy it on a cash flow basis. And remember, our Meet the Masters event coming up, the theme is revenge of the cash flow investor. And let me tell you something. These past few years through this financial crisis, the cash flow investor has won the day, or at least, at the very least, they've been in a sustainable position where they could weather the storm. So you got to invest for cash flow. Two more things before our guest here. I got a, um, a commercial property in my email box. This one from the well-known company Marcus and Millichap. And Marcus and Millichap sent out this property. And this thing looks like a total piece of crap. Okay. <laughs> Not that I have an opinion about this or anything. And so it says Marcus and Millichap is pleased to offer the following. Exclusive limited investment property opportunity. A single tenant office building in Little Rock, Arkansas. Now, this is an office building that looks like a house, okay? And there are a lot of 
properties like this around the country that are just like basically little houses that happen to be zoned commercial. So they're, quote, office building, unquote. It's not the steel and glass, beautiful, modern, high-rise building you might think of as an office building or even a garden style. This is a a crummy little one-story, basically a house that is zoned office, it looks like, okay? Now, here's what it says, and I just want, this is educational, because look at how crappy this deal is, right? Single-tenant office building, it's 7,544 square feet, Little Rock, Arkansas. The price is $1,425,000. Now, your first thing you should do is just whip out your calculator and say, what's the cost per square foot? Is it below the cost of construction? Is it at par with the cost of construction? Or is it way above the cost of construction, which is the case here? Remember, we've got a 7,544 square foot. And you know, just I just noticed this. They don't say that's the building. That could be the lot size. It just says size. Hmm. Size of what? The lot or the building? I'm assuming it's the building. If it's the size of the lot... This deal is much worse than I thought, okay? But just doing the division here, 7,500 square feet, you know, you take 1,425,000 and divide, that's $189 per square foot for a little crummy house type structure. You could build that for probably $90 a square foot in Little Rock. And it says, Long-term, 18-year lease guaranteed by United Mexican States. I don't know what that is. That must be some kind of company or maybe it's a charitable organization. I don't know. So this, you've got one tenant in there. And if that tenant defaults, you are out of business. You've got annual CPI rent increases. In other words, the rent increases are indexed to the consumer price index, which we all know because we listen to the show, woefully underestimates the true rate of inflation. So you're going to get burned there. It's located directly across from the main entrance to the University of Arkansas at Little Rock. Well, that's probably good. Okay. That's, there's the deal. I wouldn't touch that with a 10 foot pole. And oh, (laughs) I didn't even mention the cap rate. The cap rate on this deal, listen to how crummy this is. You go to jasonhartman.com, you look at the cap rates of our properties, and you're you're probably not going to see anything below 8.5%. You'll see a bunch of cap rates in the 10% range, the 12% range, some even better than that. This cap rate, 6.59%. Folks, people buy that kind of stuff every single day. Why? Why do they do it? You got me. I guess they're just too sophisticated to know any better. Okay, last thing before we get to our guest, Ben Bernanke. You've probably seen these things floating around on the social media. There's a bunch of them out there. They all have the same format. It's pretty cute. It's like a poster. And this is from Silver Circle, silvercirclemovie.com. I don't know what that is. But but it's got it's probably they're probably selling precious metals. That's probably what it is. But it's a funny sort of collage of about Ben Bernanke and it's got six pictures on it. And it says, you know, the first picture is what Congress thinks I do. And it's got a picture of Ben Bernanke walking a tightrope. In other words, he's trying to balance the economy out and make sure that the stock market's okay and the money supply is okay and employment's good and inflation is in check. What a bogus thing that that is. He doesn't do it at all. No, no central bank does. The next cell says, 
what Keynesian economists think I do. And there's a picture of Mr. Spock on, from Star Trek, the very logical Mr. Spock who evaluates everything, is very prudent and careful. And by the way, the Keynesian economists think, you know, remember, John Maynard Keynes, his philosophy was prime the pump, right? Put a bunch of fake money into, into the money supply. I, I'm not a Keynesian at all, okay? I think Keynesianism is a bad thing generally. And then the next cell says, what Austrian economists think I do? And there's a picture of Ben and there's a bunch of dollar bills floating around his head and he's smiling. And the Austrian economists, of course, they're unlike the Keynesians. They're the, you're diametrically opposed to the Keynesians. I, I, you know, I agree with the Austrian school. And what they think is they think the government should get out of the way and free markets should rule the day. Okay. The next cell says, what I tell people I do, and there's a picture of Ben, and he's captaining a ship, and he's got his captain's hat on, and he's going off into the sunset. And like the brave man he is who's taking care of the economy, and he's got all our best interests at heart. Okay, that's what he tells people he does. And then <laughs> the next picture is what I actually do, and there's a picture of Ben flipping a coin <laughs> because his guess is about as good as anybody's. And if you listen to that article that I shared on the last show, episode number 242, it's really telling about that, that transcript of a private Federal Reserve meeting that was released that talked about how completely idiotic these people are. They really know nothing. Their guess is as good as ours. And that's why they should just minimize their level of interference and let the market correct itself. That would be the best thing. And the last image says, how history will remember me. And there is a picture of the Hindenburg blimp crashing into the, the docking tower. And it has got a huge picture of the dollar bill on the side as it's going up in flames. And that is how history will remember Ben Bernanke and Alan Greenspan. In my opinion, I agree with that. They are the people who destroyed the value of the dollar. But as a prudent income property investor, you know that as the dollar is destroyed, so will the value of your mortgages be destroyed. Remember, inflation attacks our savings, our stock portfolios, our mutual funds, our bonds, even our equity in real estate. But thankfully, it also attacks our debt. So it destroys the wealth of all the people who did the supposedly right thing, who saved money, who paid off their home, who did all of that stuff. Those people get hurt the most, while the people who have long-term fixed-rate investment-grade debt outsourced to somebody else called a tenant and attached to a package of commodities that are not indexed to the dollar because they are traded globally, and those are the construction materials, the ingredients of a house, the ingredients of apartment building, those are indexed to inflation. Those people win the game on every single level, and that's what we do as prudent income property investors, and that's what we talk about here on the Creating Wealth Show. So let's go to today's guest. Join us for Meet the Masters in March. That'll be next month. It's coming right up fast, folks. Get in on the early bird pricing. Go to jasonhartman.com to register. Also, while you're there, look at the properties and the blog on our website. A lot of great stuff there. And we look forward to seeing you at Meet the Masters in March. And we will be back with today's very, very interesting guest in just a moment. 
Jason provides an extremely unique service, Deal Evaluator. Are you interested in a property outside of our network? Need a second opinion? No problem. Let our experts evaluate the deal. Find out more about it at jasonhartman.com. My pleasure to welcome William Cohen to the show. He is the author of several books, including House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excesses on Wall Street. William, how are you? I'm, I'm very well. Thank you for having me. Good. Thanks for joining us. So you're coming to us today from New York, and you're right in the thick of it there. When, when you, we talk about a house of cards, give us some insights into as to what you cover in the book and what's going on on Wall Street in general, maybe. Well, I think one, one has to, of course, uh, reflect a little bit of, you know, n- nothing is uh, comes to us sprung full-born. Everything has a a history and uh, antecedents, and on Wall Street uh, was a series of uh, private uh, partnerships uh, that have been around for something like uh, 200 plus years until one by one, beginning in 1970, uh, they all started going public and substituting other people's money uh, in their capital structures for uh, the money that was originally supplied by their partners. So for the first, say, 200 years of Wall Street's existence, it was a series of small, underfunded private partnerships, and uh, the American public had very little interaction with them and very, basically knew very little bit about them. Beginning in 1970, as I mentioned, uh, uh, this one firm called Donaldson, Lufkin, Jenrette, which was a New York private partnership, decided it was going to go public uh, other Wall Street firms were aghast and offended. It was against the New York Stock Exchange rules, but they persisted and went public. And then, of course, one by one, everybody else on Wall Street went public, too. So over time, what had been partners' uh, uh, money that was being risked every day and therefore forced uh, everyone at these small firms to be prudent about the risks they were taking uh, went from being a, a sort of a partnership culture to what I call a bonus culture where people were encouraged to take risks with other people's money. Uh, Their own uh, net worth wasn't on the line anymore. They they had no accountability whatsoever. And as a result, they were encouraged to take huge risks with their investors and their creditors' money. And and as a result, over time, uh, they took more and more risk. Uh, They used more and more leverage. They uh, essentially became, uh, hence the title of the book, a, a house of cards. And every firm on Wall Street was pretty, is pretty much was pretty much like this. Bear Stearns was just the first to fail in March of 2008. And and when you talk about these firms going public and so forth, are are you talking about investment banks then specifically, or or just general financial services firms that serve consumers like Merrill Lynch, for example? Or basically, I'm trying to make a subtle distinction between securities firms and commercial banks. Although now, since the the collapse, the ending of the Glass-Steagall Act. So you have to go back to the Depression and the creation of what was called the Glass-Steagall Act in, a, in around 1934, which forced investment banks, securities firms like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. Uh, in fact, that's how Morgan Stanley got created, because to separate from commercial banks. So J.P. Morgan, the great J.P. Morgan, uh, used to have both commercial uh, banking and investment banking in under one roof, but the Glass-Steagall Act required that they separate commercial banking from investment banking because investment banking was perceived as being very risky, b- 
business where people were encouraged to take risks. And commercial banking, of course, had depositors' money, and so they didn't want to put that money at risk. And, and that's what people experienced during the Great Depression when so much money was lost because of bank loans that they, bank deposits that they couldn't get out, and people lost a lot of money. And so they wanted to separate commercial banking from investment banking. That's how Morgan Stanley got created, because two of the partners from J.P. Morgan started uh, an investment banking firm called called Morgan Stanley, and Goldman Sachs uh, stayed as an investment bank. It didn't really have a commercial banking operation, and, and other firms chose which, they, which way they were going to go. Uh, so it wasn't until 1999 when Glass-Steagall was repealed that investment banks and commercial banks could be in the same business again. So now, you know, by the time this crisis rolls around in 2007 and 2008, it's very hard to distinguish between a commercial bank and an investment bank and a securities firm and a non-securities firm. But the fact of the matter was it hadn't been that the U.S. government had never saved a securities firm until it decided to step in and save Bear Stearns. Uh, in the past, it had always let securities firms that got into trouble fail, as opposed to commercial banks that got into trouble. They were rescued. But now you've got sort of you had this system where it was hard to tell one from the other. They were all interconnected, and they were all too important. And uh, you know the failure, the risk of their failure was too great, and so we had to save them. And 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 I mean, during the financial crisis, the question is which one? But the most recent one, the, these investment banks on Wall Street were becoming bank holding companies, right? Was that so they could receive bailout funds from TARP? No, not, not not really. Um, so in part, it was yes. So in, in September, of, uh, I think it was September 22nd, 2008, the two sort of remaining big securities firms, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, uh, and I, when I say remaining, I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek in the sense that obviously Bear Stearns had failed in March, Lehman Brothers had, had gone into bankruptcy on September 15th, a week earlier, and also a few days uh, before September 22nd, Merrill Lynch which was going to go out of business and fail, uh, was bought by Bank of America. So there were used to be five big securities firms, and by September 22nd of 2008, Bear Stearns, Merrill Lynch, and Lehman Brothers had all failed, uh, leaving Morgan Stanley, which was about to fail, and Goldman Sachs, which was not far behind. So what they did is they appealed to the Fed to allow them to become, quote-unquote, bank holding companies, which gave them basically infinite access to the federal funds uh, at very low cost, and was basically a gift from uh, an underappreciated gift from the American uh, public to these two firms, allowing them to have all the liquidity they needed to fund their business and and to survive. But they became bank holding companies, and in that they joined the other big banks like Bank of America and J.P. Morgan and and, and Deutsche Bank and things like that, uh, who were also bank holding companies. So. Therefore, what happened was on September 22nd, 2008, is basically securities firms, the big securities firms all went away and they became bank holding companies, which has given Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, uh, like these other banks, uh, infinite access to low cost funds from the Federal Reserve Bank, which has been a gift uh, from the Federal Reserve Bank to these funds because then they have firms because then they can turn around and invest this money in treasury securities and get an, take the spread or they can or, or they can lend it out and get an even bigger spread so it's an incredible gift that the fed keeps giving to these firms 
and at the expense, I might add, of the American public, who not only helps uh, pay for it, but also whose uh, uh, interest rates that they get on their savings are kept incredibly low. And, and now that we've become a nation of savers again, savers are being penalized for saving. I mean, when, I don't know when the last time you looked at your savings account. So it's below the rate of inflation, so we're certainly getting penalized for saving. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, saving money is about the worst deal going, unfortunately, which is that incentivizes bad behavior in the economy. And of course, very speculative behavior. And I don't think that's good overall. But you know, you have some very interesting chapter titles in your book. One one is a, a, a section rather than a chapter where you talk about the end of the second Gilded Age and, and then the 10 and 10 strategy. Tell us about some of that, if you would. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, it, it, it was tru- truly... Basically, it's been one big party for Wall Street since since the early 1980s, uh, when you know inflation was tamed by Paul Volcker. Uh, Reagan came to town and basically loosened uh, the regulatory environment. There was a lot of financial innovation, whether it was uh, the creation of securitization, which led to the creation of securitizing mortgages or auto loans or credit card receivables, the innovation of uh, high-yield finance, which was Mike Milken at Drex- Drexel Burnham, who created so-called junk bonds, and sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the Wall Street's animal spirits got unleashed, if you will, and, th- and that just has led to uh, uh, the combination of that with this other fact of life on Wall Street that I, I mentioned before, which was that these were no longer private partnerships. By the mid-'80s, all the firms, uh, except for Goldman Sachs, had gone, had gone public, Goldman Sachs didn't go public until 1999, but basically all of these firms were were encouraged, uh, the people at these firms were encouraged to make big bets with other people's money. So you had this one big party. I mean, whether it was, you know, leveraged buyouts or internet IPOs or emerging telecom, you know, hysteria or mortgage-backed security hysteria, I mean, on and on and on. I mean, it's it's been one uh, a crisis after another that was created by this combination of the fact that people got rewarded to take risks with other people's money, all these new kinds of products were being developed and, and brought into the market without uh, any accountability on people's behavior because there was no threat of losing your entire net worth because there weren't private partnerships anymore. In fact, people were encouraged to take these risks because they wanted to get big bonuses, and the way to get a big bonus was to generate revenue, and the way to generate revenue was to sell these wacko products to unsuspecting buyers. So, yeah, and and they may not come home to roost during your tenure. So, you know, you can just like not. like like our politicians just kick the can down the road to the next group. And even when they do come home to roost during their tenure, like like they did in two thousand seven and two thousand eight, what happens? No There's real no accountability. Yeah. They get bailed out. And they still get their big bonuses. It's it's just it's just disgusting, and you can really see why people are so angry about it. Which actually brings me to another question, just to get your comments on this, not in the book, obviously, or anything, but the Occupy Wall Street movement. Your thoughts? Well, I'll be I'll be honest with you. This is uh, uh, something that I've been uh, wrestling with lately. I've written a few columns about it lately. I was on the Daily Show uh, on April 28th talking about my Goldman book, and during that show I talked about how I couldn't believe that there was nobody out in the streets protesting about what Wall Street has been doing. And, and here uh, they are. <laughs> and, so, and so here they are. But I, I, have, I, have, I guess I am saddened and disappointed with, with what here we are means. I, I wish 
the, 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 these uh, protesters, whoever they are, and they really are a cross-section of America, and I applaud protesting. I believe it's an important part of America and what makes America uh, great or what has made America great. Uh, so I'm all for it, but I'm really kind of disappointed that whoever these people are, they haven't whatever taken the time or asked people like me who understand these things or other people to, to share with them the way Wall Street really works so that they can be clear in, in the changes that need to take place so that we don't have this recurring boom-bust cycle on Wall Street, this recurring series of crises that really are extremely debilitating to not only our economy, but to our entire culture and society. And so just sort of blithering away with the usual, you know, revolutionary pablum, which you, you often see now down at the Occupy Wall Street movement, I find very frustrating and disappointing. And I wish they were more focused and had a better understanding of the way Wall Street really works so we could get real reform. So I'm all for the protest. It was an early person wondering why people hadn't protested, but now I feel like there's no there there, and I'm not quite sure what it's all about. Yeah, it just seems that they need to get clear on a real message, and otherwise they're just sort of being rather childish. But another interesting point, and I, I this has been circulating around Facebook and in the social media, where there are two newspaper clippings, and one is entitled, Ex-Mortgage CEO Sentenced to Prison for a $3 billion Fraud, and it talks about how he got a 40-month sentence. And the other article says, Homeless man gets 15 years for stealing $100. The contrast here is mind-boggling, and it is just amazing how little account there has been, at least so far, for the, the crimes that have gone on in our, our financial system at the highest levels. I, I know exactly what you're saying. As I wrote in the Goldman book, the crime is not what's illegal. The crime is what's legal. You have to remember that for decades now, generations now, Wall Street has been uh, influencing what goes on in Washington. Wall Street has been paying lobbyists and donating to congressional coffers so they can get the kind of regulations or lack thereof that they feel comfortable with. Uh, there's been the revolving door between Wall Street and Washington that's been going on for decades. So you get something like the Dodd-Frank law, which is 2,200 pages long that nobody can figure out. Uh, while we're having this conversation now, Wall Street lobbyists are working away in Washington to make sure that the regulations that are still being written uh, are ones that they can live with. And they're willing to take out, you know, take out all the stops to make sure that that happens. As a result, you don't get, uh, it's just shocking to me. I think in House of Cards uh, about, about Bear Stearns, I I didn't do this intentionally, but I think it's clear that there's a sort of a prosecutorial roadmap that shows in documents and in conversations I had with people, uh, you know, what was going on with the with the Bear Stearns hedge funds, which led to the collapse of Bear Stearns. The collapse of the hedge funds led to the collapse of Bear Stearns. And, and there was a trial. Actually, these two hedge fund managers were uh, the only time that any, anybody in all this has been brought uh, to trial criminally. And then they were acquitted. They were acquitted because the government, you know, chose to go down a prosecutorial path that totally missed the boat. I mean, how could the government mess that up? It seems like it's almost intentional, like there's a, a payoff. I hate to sound so conspiratorial, but it's just funny. I mean, like, like another case that just bugs the heck out of me is the is the Bernie Madoff case. There, there was no trial. I mean, he just 
pled guilty and and that was it. It almost seemed like that was to cover things up so we wouldn't hear about them and evidence wouldn't be made public. I, I don't know. That all just happened far too smoothly for, for me, I, I thought. Well, of course, every, every everybody who is charged with a crime does have the option of pleading guilty and avoiding trial. And so uh, he, he clearly decided to go that route for, for whatever reasons, uh, you know, I don't know. On the other on the other side, you have somebody like, you know, Raj, Raj Ratnam, the hedge fund manager who decided to plead not guilty. And so we were had, uh, uh, you know, theater of the absurd, uh, you know, as his trial progressed and he tried to defend himself, but it was clear that he was caught red handed. And so uh, I guess, you know, you can't always uh, this is one of the rights that people who are charged with crimes have is to plead guilty. I mean, I guess it's not dissimilar to the way some people in uh, uh, Libya feel when they see that uh, Gaddafi has been killed and when they, some people would have preferred that he had been captured and put on trial and, and put away in prison for the rest of his life. So he really continued to suffer. Let me take a brief pause. We'll be back in just a minute. Are you aware that the largest transfer of wealth in human history is underway? Are you concerned about protecting your income, savings, or home equity? All these bailouts benefit the Wall Street crooks and the Washington elites while costing the middle class. Experts are predicting difficult times ahead. The only question is, where will you and your family end up, with the haves or the have-nots? My name is Jason Hartman with Platinum Properties Investor Network. For two decades, I've made a small fortune in the most historically proven wealth creator. Don't be the victim of Wall Street fat cats who line their pockets with your pension funds. We can teach you how to protect yourself and your family in these wildly turbulent financial times. Create and protect your nest egg the same way 85% of America's wealthy do. If you're interested in the most innovative financial education around, it's urgent that you register for our next event. Learn more about this outstanding event and get your free CD at jasonhartman.com. That's jasonhartman.com. Or call 1-800-40-JASON. That's 1-800-405-2766. Your investments could be gone tomorrow. Protect yourself and act today. So what is your thought about the future? You know, Wall Street had its big changes in the 80s. And it's interesting because that's shortly after that is when it seems to me that the stock market just expanded so much into middle America, owning stocks later with the advent of the internet and the online trading. And it seems like everybody and their brother got into the stock market, whereas in the old days, it was more for the wealthy and the insiders. And, and I don't mean insiders like insider trading, but just the people at higher levels of finance. But the stock market became really, really public after the big changes. And, and maybe that's what caused even more pain in, into the American middle class. Of course, it wasn't, it wasn't by accident, right? I mean, uh, uh, Merrill Lynch is now a public company. He's got a report, report quarterly profit growth all the time. You know, it's the biggest broker. It's a global brand name. And so what does it do? It, it pushes relentlessly through its advertising, encouraging people to own stocks. And, of course, that serves them well because they get fees every time they do a trade or open a brokerage account. And so uh, it just became a, a national, international industry to encourage people to own stocks. And so you're absolutely right. And, like, when the market crashed in 1987, 24 years ago today uh, uh, or yesterday, uh, two days ago, uh, you know, you had – you had the market going down 22.6% in one day, and the little investor got totally screwed. I mean, just completely taken advantage of and lost a lot of money. You know, basically, it's been, it's ever since then, it's been a complete and utter loss of trust between Wall Street and Main Street. 
But I, I think that, you know, look, I think that that with a slow economy does a tremendous amount of damage to Wall Street firms. I mean, they 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 don't they can't. It's much harder for them to make money uh, in these slow economies, and you see that uh, in their results that came out in the third quarter. I think that you combine that the slow economy and people being you know shying away from risk taking with you know the Dodd Frank. Uh, uh, law, the Volcker rule, and the new regulations being written, even though we're not quite sure how it's all going to come out. But basically, you know, the casino that used to operate, as we talked about for the last generation on Wall Street, is clearly in the process of being, if not closed, then certainly its hours are being uh, uh, greatly diminished. And so a firm like Goldman Sachs, which has prided itself on sort of having the best trading operation, which could also be the best quote-unquote gambling operation, Those gambling, that gambling apparatus to a large degree, I think is going to be much tougher in the future. And Goldman's and people places like Goldman and all the rest of Wall Street, which prided itself on making these proprietary bets and making a lot of money from them, are not going to be able to do it anymore. So I I think either intentionally or not, uh, I think that what is likely to happen in the future is these Wall Street firms are, are not going to make as much money as they used to make. Hopefully, they will then not pay their people as much as they've been paying them because they get way overpaid. And, and, and thirdly, I suspect that they will go back to being what they used to be when the Glass-Steagall Act was in effect, where, where they provided what, what we, the services we want them to provide, which is capital to companies uh, around the globe whenever they need it, 24 by 7, uh, you know, whether that's debt financing or equity financing, providing investment advice, providing advice on mergers and acquisitions, but, you know, closing the casino. And I think that'll make the world safer for all of us because we just can't tolerate this kind of risk-taking anymore that Wall Street's been doing for the last 25 years. Well, I very much hope you're right. However, I, uh, my pessimistic side says that Americans have very short memories, and when when the frenzy starts again, which it undoubtedly will, there will be Wall Street will have their, their lawyers, lobbyists, PR firms, and spin doctors, and all of it out in mass, and, and the general public will just soak it up like, like the pawns or suckers they are. <laughs> You know, I don't know. I'm pretty pessimistic, I guess. Uh, well, well, I think it, it. You know, again, it, remain, it remains to be seen. I mean, we've been taught a, a, a lesson here. There's no no question about it. But you're right. We've been taught this lesson many times in the last 25 years, ten times at least. And uh, you know, when the market crashed in 1987, I saw grown men standing around Quotron mach- machines crying and and. and Everybody swore this kind of thing would never happen again, and then it's only happened about 10 times since. So there's certainly nothing in the Dodd-Frank law or any of the regulations that are being written that is going to change the way people behave on Wall Street or change the incentives on Wall Street. So I suspect before long we will have another problem. Yeah. And and what do we do just in closing here? You know, I mean, what do people need to do, Bill, to, to or, or what needs to happen, I guess, in government to fix it? Do we need to change Glass-Steagall back to the way it was before 99? What what would solve the problem? Well, I, I think I think while, you know, reinstating Glass-Steagall or something like that, uh, separating commercial banking from investment banking, separating risk takers from non-risk takers, I think would, uh, you know, it'd have to be updated, obviously, uh, I think would be a, a very effective uh, rule or law. I think getting it uh, implemented is very tough in this p- 
political stalemate environment. You know, I would I would call on these Wall Street firms. They can do this without a law. They they need to change the incentive system on Wall Street. It can no longer be right that people get paid to take huge risks with other people's money and they get paid big bonuses whether they, you know, lose money for these firms or don't lose money for these firms. One thing that was a common denominator through, you know, much of the years until 1970 which was that these firms had to operate using their partners' capital. And as a result, they were much more prudent about the risks they were willing to take. And they weren't rewarded to take risks. They were rewarded to create pre-tax income so that they would have something to divide at the end of the year. So we need to go back to something like that. I've made a few proposals that you know, never, of course, get any traction. But, but, but I think that, that this is something that real leaders on Wall Street, you know, if Lloyd Blankfein at Goldman Sachs were a real leader, he would implement a program that put you know, the top 100 people at his firm or the top 300 or 400 have real skin in the game, have, re- have their entire net worth again on the line so that they were really cognizant every day about the risks they were taking and are really prudent about the risks they were taking. And I think if something like that would, would help, even if we don't get the, the, le- the legislation passed that might really do it, but that kind of self-regulation, that kind of leadership would help reduce the tensions uh, and the risk that Wall Street poses to the rest of us. And, and it's long overdue, and that's the kind of thing that I think needs to happen. Well, and I couldn't agree more, but the question is, you look where the incentive lies, why would they do that? Why would Blankfein care? I mean, playing with other people's money and taking big risk, that's rewarding to Goldman Sachs. It's rewarding to all of the other firms too, isn't it? I mean, your, your vision is a good long-term vision. It seems like it would inspire public trust and more money ultimately would come back to the market. I, I agree with you there. but so Goldman used to pride itself on being long-term greedy. What better way to be long-term greedy than to try to take a, a quantum leap forward and trying to restore the trust that has obviously been lost between Wall Street and the American public, clearly been, lo- been lost. And one way to do that is to try to instill into the American public some level of confidence that, hey, we have our own net worth on the line again, and, and we're the first ones that are going to get wiped out if, if we do things that are stupid or, or not in our own interests that, that really damage the, the American public and, and, and the world economy. And, and that will make them more prudent and, I think, change the kinds of risks they're willing to take. And the great thing is on Wall Street, it's basically a cartel at this point. And so if one firm like Goldman Sachs does it, they'll all do it relatively quickly. And we will all be much safer as a result because counting on Congress to come up with laws that make sense and to change people's behavior is, is a long putt in its, of itself, too. Sure it is, sure it is. And you talk about it at the investment bank level and, and the Wall Street firm level, but at the corporate level, the companies that people are actually buying the shares in more broadly than in the investment banks, wasn't Sarbanes-Oxley supposed to solve that problem? I mean, did it help even, or, or are things just sort of business as usual with a lot more accounting fees than before? <laughs> well, there are a lot more accounting fees than before. I mean, we haven't, I mean, you know, I don't know whether Sarbanes-Oxley has, has worked or not, but we can't, it's harder to come up with clear examples of sort of Enron, WorldCom, Tyco kind of horrific corporate behavior. Again, this time it was confined largely to the financial sector, 
this was a crisis of Wall Street's own making that was entirely preventable, but they couldn't. It's like the parable of the frog and the scorpion. You know, why does scorpion sting? Why, why does Wall Street do this? Because that's what they're, you know, unfortunately, that's what they're incented to do now. That, that's their nature, right? Yeah. That's their nature. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Well, very, very interesting stuff. I sure hope that your vision pans out. I'm less optimistic, but if, if your vision pans out, I think everybody would be better off for it. And I think Wall Street really needs to just rein in their greed a bit and, and, and set a good example. <laughs> Boy, I, I sure hope that happens someday, well, because I think it would <laughs> inspire a lot of confidence. And if it doesn't happen, then I'll have a, another book, uh, I'm sure, to write about the, the latest crazy behavior on Wall Street. That's for sure. Well, William Cohen, author of The House of Cards and several other books, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining us today. The book is getting great reviews on Amazon. looks very popular. Did you want to give out any other websites or any other information about where people can get them? They can get them on Amazon. If there are any bookstores in existence anymore, I think they still have them. They're paperback versions. Uh, I'm sure Amazon sells them for two cents each. So the more important thing is that people get a hold of them and read them and understand the way Wall Street really works so that they can put pressure on people, to, you know, congressional leaders and people on Wall Street to, to change the way they've been behaving. Fantastic. William Cohn, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This show is produced by the Hartman Media Company, all rights reserved. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please visit www.hartmanmedia.com or email media at hartmanmedia.com. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own, and the host is acting on behalf of Platinum Properties Investor Network, Inc., exclusively.